Hey guys, welcome back on the Blockworks Macro YouTube channel. This is Alf speaking, and I'm going to talk to you about my latest article of the Macro Compass, which is called Fading the Soft Lending Narrative. Now, guys, there has been a very strong labor market report, or at least labeled so by mainstream media, coupled with the first preliminary signs that inflation is slowing down, right? And this has brought back a 2021-like euphoria in risk assets. Everything is running. Junk credit spreads are tightening. Meme stocks are going through the roof. Even Turkey is priced as a safe investment or a safer investment right now, despite real interest rates as negative as minus 60% over there. Now, what we call um, an economy or markets which are behaving as if the economy is delivering decent growth and inflation is predictably low or coming down is what we call Goldilocks. Now, markets in that case are not too hot, not cold. They're just right. They're perfect temperature. There is one problem, though, that I think this Goldilocks or soft lending market interpretation is very misplaced at this stage. Now, the reason why I think that is basically that if you have a deep look at the latest job market and CPI reports, you understand that the extent of demand weakness that the Fed has generated, has engineered through tighter and tighter financial conditions, is not consistent with the soft lending. Because yes, it probably will help slowing inflation down, but it will also come at quite a big cost for economic growth. So the uprising soft lending narrative seems misplaced because while inflation might be coming down and helping the Fed perhaps take a little bit of the, of the foot of the gas pedal, this will come at a big cost for economic growth, which is not consistent with the soft lending narrative. Now, let's start from the job market, guys, because there's a good news first. All jobs lost during the pandemic have now been recovered. And that's great. But if you dig deeper and you ask yourself, compared to June, which are the sectors that added most jobs? Well, your answer is the government, which you wouldn't expect in, a, in an economy where, where growth is very strong and robust. It, will, it should be the private sector that adds jobs and not the public sector. So other industries also deliver, but the fact that the government job creation was so large actually stood out. The more interesting part of the labor market survey was that if you look at the household survey data, not at the Bureau of Labor Statistics job report, also known as the non-farm payrolls, but at the household survey data, it was much weaker. So, and this matters a lot because the household survey data actually counts multiple job holders not as new jobs being created, but it counts them separately. And this is important because if you look at the job creation that the household survey is actually pointing out since March, basically all job creations in the US has been multiple job holders. No new job being created, but the same people having more jobs at the same time. As since March, according to the household survey, we have less full-time and part-time workers and more multiple job holders. The non-farm payrolls data does not take that into account, and it calculates as if, if one person is holding two jobs, then a new job has been created. And the other thing is that the, the non-farm payroll, uh, which is produced by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, has a lot of statistical methodologies behind, which, of course, are helping in estimating real-time what is the amount of job creation in the U.S., but there have been, according to the BLS, something like 309,000 net new business openings in July, which is a very large number that contributed to positive non-farm payrolls. But likely, this is just the result of a new statistical methodology, which was uh, put in place after the pandemic rather than underlying business openings. These new net business openings or closures get revised very, very frequently in big sizes. So we should watch out for that volatile component as well. 
And the third is that participation rate is not picking up. We're still one and a half percentage point away from pre-pandemic levels. And it seems pretty clear by now that people who decided to leave the labor force, they pretty much left for good. This is pretty negative for the soft landing camp because a structurally smaller labor force means that there's going to be less potential growth, less output for the economy, potentially higher wages as well, which is exactly the opposite of Goldilocks. It implies a lower economic output with the potential for higher and sticky inflation. And this lower participation rate goes beyond the effect of demographics to the extent that you cannot argue that demographic trends uh, from 2020 to 2022 should explain one and a half percentage point drop in participation rate. These are people that are that have left the labor force for good, and this doesn't actually sit well with the soft landing narrative. There was also a CPI report, guys, which was pretty pretty relevant because finally inflation is lowing, it's showing signs of a slowdown. What a slowdown that was, because if you think about the month-on-month numbers, in, in June we were at 1.3%, and in July we are at 0%. This 1.3% drop month-on-month in headline inflation is the biggest since the 80s. Now, let's look at the details, because as we know, the Federal Reserve cares the most about momentum and composition of inflationary pressures. They want to see progress on both fronts, and then they're going to be able to ease their stance a little bit. Now, when it comes to momentum, the 0.3% month-on-month core CPI print helped stabilizing the momentum of inflation a bit. If you look at moving average, as a measure of momentum, and you look at the six-month moving average of these monthly core inflation prints, you actually see 0.5% as a a print, which is historically high, sits at the same level as it did in the 80s. So the 0.3% month-on-month print helps lowering that momentum or stabilizing that momentum, but a lot more is needed to be able to say that inflation is uh, convincingly slowing down. Interestingly, when it comes to the composition, The big drivers behind the move down in CPI are energy, other commodities, and together with the most cyclical components of the CPI basket, transportation, energy-related stuff, used cars and trucks. Broadly speaking, all the supply chains of these items, especially energy and commodities, haven't really improved much. So if the supply side of the equation is relatively unchanged and prices are struggling going up, it must mean that on a marginal basis, this is the byproduct of a weaker aggregate demand. And this theory is also backed by another evidence, which is that if you look at the the cyclical components of the CPI basket are all experiencing drawdowns, while the stickier lagging core services prices, for instance, shelter, they remain stubbornly high, both in an absolute level, but also on a momentum basis. So in short, guys, the soft landing narrative seems to me pretty misplaced at this stage because the direction of travel is right, perhaps lower inflation going forward, growth cooling down. But actually, the evidence points to the fact that growth is not just going to cool down. There is going to be pretty much a steep drop in economic activity, not the measure that controls slowdown, which is consistent with the soft landing. If indeed you look at the the nuances of the labor market report and the CPI report, what is pretty clear is that aggregate demand is slowing down. And that's leading actually a, a disinflationary uh, lower real growth narrative, which is not fully consistent with a soft landing, which instead is a controlled inflation pattern with a pretty decent growth outcome. When I look at the growth outcome, I see green forward-looking indicators, real wage growth being negative for one and a half years, people reaching out for credit card debt to bridge the purchasing power gap, 
multiple job holders, which are accounting for a lot of the job creation since March. And most importantly, my measure of credit impulse suggests this is not going to be a soft landing. So the chart here shows in black the G5 credit impulse as percentage of GDP. It leads the other series by four to five quarters, so quite a decent time lag and quite a, quite a decent leading indicator. The credit impulse represents the amount of spendable money that the private sector gets at any point in time, whether that is increasing very fast or decelerating very fast. It's a measure of momentum of the amount of money we have, not central bank's balance sheets, not all these unquantifiable measures, the amount of money the private sector has at any point in time, that is the, the credit impulse measured on a momentum basis. So it is growing very fast, is it decelerating very fast, etc. And as you can see, there has been a very, very fast acceleration in the amount of disposable money for the private sector during the pandemic, due mostly to fiscal transfers. And we are now seeing quite a deceleration mostly due to the fact that there's going to be a large fiscal cliff. Governments are not on a marginal basis transferring money to the private sector. They're withdrawing money from the private sector on a net basis. And banks are pretty selectively lending, which is not enough to offset this credit cliff. As you see, when the black line goes down with the lead of four to five quarters, both earnings and inflation actually tends to go down. With the, lead, with the, with the, with the lag of four to five quarters, that means that both economic activity and inflationary pressures, according to this measure, are supposed to slow down. We are seeing the first evidences, but this is not consistent with a soft landing because a soft landing would imply an inflation slowdown and growth holding up pretty well, while my credit impulse would point to both growth and inflation slowing down very aggressively. Now, when it comes to the market repricing we just saw and asset allocation, as I previously arg argued, some of this rally makes tactical sense. If, guys, if inflationary pressures are abating, the Fed can actually take the, the, the foot off the gas pedal a little bit. That implies lower real yields, and especially the not overly cyclical, but high-quality growth sectors of the stock market can take a breather. But it's much more reasonable to price a soft landing with a subsequent upgrade for economic growth and this dubious rally in meme stocks, small-cap cyclicals, emerging markets, junk credit spreads, all of that makes much less sense. Big picture, over the next few quarters, I think that fixed income could emerge as one of the best risk-adjusted asset classes. This is a disinflationary lower growth cycle where the bond market generally does very well. And as you can see in the chart, again with the credit impulse, it leads by one or two quarters. When it drops very aggressively, the S&P 500 tends to underperform treasuries on a total return basis. Now, don't get me wrong, it doesn't mean the S&P can't deliver positive returns. It just means you should prefer safer assets to risk assets in this part of the macro cycle. Now, uh, I am positioned pretty much uh, accordingly. So I have a long-term ETF portfolio. I have a tactical portfolio. The long-term ETF portfolio has a, quite a good chunk of cash, which I'm uh, patiently waiting to invest in good risk-reward long-term opportunities. I don't see many out there. I see some... In, uh, in the risk assets, but I have a strong preference for a lower location and especially for high quality growth names, non-cyclical, low beta industries, talking about good tech names, utilities, healthcare. If you need to be allocated, I would prefer those names rather than the crazy frothy frenziness we're seeing back in uh, meme stocks and the likes. Uh, I have a higher than usual exposure to 10 year plus government bonds, uh, which are doing pretty well since I bought them in June. And as I, as I said, I, I believe they could be a decent uh, asset class to own 
going into this disinflationary, slowing economic growth cycle. And my tactical portfolio is left with some uh, curve flatteners in the US where I buy the 10-year bond and I sell the two-year bond. I think curves will could invert further. And I have a relative value trade where I am long the Nasdaq and I am short the Russell. So there again, I don't care whether both of them are going to go down or both of them are going to go up. I just care about the Nasdaq doing better than the Russell on a relative uh, value basis. And the Nasdaq should, in this case, represent a basket of tech names against the Russell, which represents a basket of small cap cyclical names, which are going to suffer, in my opinion, further from the economic slowdown. And guys, I uh, just wanted to leave you at that with the, with the conclusion of my, uh, of my article, which is that this soft lending narrative has to be faded. It has to be faded because I don't think that we are in a situation where economic growth is going to keep at decent levels while inflation goes down. I don't think that an overly leveraged uh, financial market and real economy can easily handle higher interest rates and tighter financial conditions to the extent the Federal Reserve has engineered them in the first half of this year, which was very, very convincingly tighter financial conditions. I don't think that is consistent with the soft landing. I think economic growth will need to come down and the slowdown in inflation will come at a big cost for economic growth. This is not consistent with soft lending. And the rally we are seeing is just the result of lower real yields, which are a byproduct of inflation coming down a bit. That makes sense as the Federal Reserve needs to do a bit less. But the rally we are seeing is also the re-leveraging of all the volatility targeting funds. These funds were basically priced out, had to deleverage during the first six months because volatility went up in all asset classes, including bonds. And therefore, if you are if you are a fund that that basically leverages up when volatility is lower, you have to deleverage. So you have to sell basically your positions when volatility is, is up and it's sticky and it's high. And now the opposite is happening where these funds, I think, are macro condition insensitive buyers to a certain extent. And as a narrative is evolving where volatility is going to remain low and the Federal Reserve will easily uh, be able to control inflation on the way down while ensuring that growth doesn't collapse, they can re-leverage. I would fade this narrative according to the data and the framework that I just discussed. Last words from my side, all of this is available as a deep dive article on the Macro Compass. It's my free newsletter, themacrocompass.substack.com. There are, I think, roughly 85,000 people right now reading that. It's all free, guys. If you comment in there, I will reply to every single comment. It would really make my day if you go and check it out and uh, perhaps consider subscribing. I will talk soon again next week. And uh, don't forget to subscribe as well to the Blockworks Macro YouTube channel because you will be hearing this kind of macro takes, but also more interviews to come over the next weeks. Ciao, guys. Mm-hmm.